Father, we stand before you as weak people, weaker than we may like to admit, weaker than we may even be aware of. We come to you and we need your help. And we ask that you would take our weakness and work through it. We ask that your power would come upon us and we pray that you would give us understanding into your word so that we can live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I came here last night to practice the sermon. It was 27 minutes long. Oh, that's right. So I cut it back. And at the 8 o'clock service, I was aiming for 20 minutes. I was like, oh man, that's still a little too long. So I cut it a little bit more. I'm aiming for 15. So I hope that puts you at ease. (laughs) So we'll get to it. You may remember that last Sunday was pretty toasty too. And last Sunday night found me at the Butler County Fair. And among the carnival uh, games and all that stuff, there was this tent that advertised strange and mysterious animals. A cow with seven legs, a 75-pound rat, and on and on. And you couldn't see in unless you paid money and went in. But I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way this is true. But for $2, I want to see how they try and trick people. So I paid my two bucks and went in. The first animal I saw was labeled half zebra, half donkey. And the legs of this animal had zebra stripes, but then as you went further and further up, its coat faded into a gradual gray thick coat of a donkey. And I thought, come on, anybody can spray paint a zebra. I was a little skeptical. But then the next animal I saw was a five-legged sheep. And it had this extra leg dangling from below its neck. It didn't quite touch the ground, it just kind of dangled there. And it sure looked real to me. And this thing that I was so sure was a hoax because it didn't match with the reality I'm used to. At the end, I saw it and was convinced. And to be on the safe side, I called an independent veterinarian to ask him about this, my dad, and he said that, (laughs) and he said that these things do indeed happen. When I first saw the animals, I didn't believe it was true. I just thought it was a hoax. We're going to encounter a truth today that when I first hear it, I want to believe it, but it seems so far out of my experience that I think this has got to be a hoax. And here is that truth. The most powerful force in the universe is unleashed by our weakness. The most powerful force in the universe, God's power, is unleashed by our weakness. When I hear that, I think, that sounds nice, but it sure looks like a zebra that's been spray-painted. When I hear this, I think, God has said this, so I believe it, but I just don't get it. Because I see lots of power unleashed in the world. But that power is not unleashed by human weakness or by trusting God. 
My prayer this morning is that by the end of this sermon, we'll have come closer to believing that this is indeed true. God presents this truth to us in 2 Corinthians 12. He presents it as Paul tells an autobiographical story. Paul was one of the first pastors in the church. He's writing a letter to a church in Corinth in modern-day Greece. Paul started many churches, and to keep in touch as he traveled, but in between visits, he would write them letters. And so in chapter 12, he tells them a story of what it's been like for him to follow Christ. He says that a friend of his had an amazing experience. One of his friends was taken up into heaven. He's not sure if it happened in a vision or if he was physically, bodily taken there, but he knows it was a powerful, supernatural experience. His friend felt closer to God than he ever had been, and this experience brought his friend and brought Paul great joy. Many people think that Paul is talking about himself, that he's the person who had this amazing experience. I've known some preachers who have told the story as a sermon illustration and said, a friend of mine did such and such, or such and such happened to a friend of mine when it really happened to them. But they want to say it was their friend, so it doesn't look like they're bragging. I think that's what Paul is doing here. I think he had this amazing experience, but he doesn't want to brag about it too much, so he says that his friend had this experience. Regardless of whether it happened to Paul or to his friend, it's clear that it brought Paul great delight. Even if you have not been transported to paradise, you may know what it's like to have an experience where you feel unusually close to God. A time when God's love or his truth or his presence just comes alive in a special way that you look back on with fond memories. So Paul has this amazing experience, but to keep him from getting too elated about this, a thorn is placed in his side, a painful, annoying, pesky distraction. It's not clear what this thorn was. Some people have thought it was some kind of temptation. Some have thought that it was epilepsy. When Paul writes to the Galatian church in In Galatians 4.14, the literal translation is, Paul says, I give thanks that you welcomed me warmly and did not spit upon my arrival. And some people think that's a sign that maybe Paul had epilepsy because in the ancient world, people thought it was contagious and you would spit in the presence of someone who had epilepsy so that you wouldn't get it. So some people thought he had epilepsy. But we have no definitive proof. We don't know whether it was a physical disease. We don't know whether it was a persistent temptation. We just don't know. You may very well have a thorn in your side. Sometimes when my knees are too achy or when my back is hurting too much, I can't go running. And in the small scheme of things, like that's a pretty tiny thorn, right? But when I can't go running for weeks on end, I feel held back. I don't think as clearly. I don't pray as clearly. But when I run, I feel alive. My thoughts clear. They get lucid. My prayers become more real. You may have a thorn in your side that 
that comes and goes like that, or maybe something that's more in your face, more consequential. We don't know what Paul's thorn was, but we do know it held him back. And it was so annoying to him, he concertedly prayed three times, asking God to take it away. But God doesn't take it away. Often this is the place where you and I live, isn't it? Most of us have things that we have cried out to God to change. We've sought out emotional, physical, spiritual, relational healing for ourselves or for a loved one. And sometimes God uses his mighty power and heals those things. But sometimes he doesn't. We could spend the rest of the day with each of us coming up one by one, sharing things in our lives, or we've begged God to change. And as of now, he has not yet. This may be the passage in the Bible that best answers that vexing question of why. Why are we, or loved ones, not healed by an all-powerful, all-loving God? God's response comes in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you to get by. That may not always be the words we want to hear. The word sufficient speaks to need. We live in such a luxurious society that even in, in bad economic times, we easily confuse wants and needs. God does not promise that his grace will always provide what we want, but he promises that his grace will provide what we need. What we need to keep plodding along when we can't make sense out of life. My grace is sufficient for you. And then God adds the second half of verse 9, which is the more confusing part of it for me. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. When I hear that, that sounds like a zebra that's been spray-painted to look like a donkey. I hear it and I say, is that really the way it works? You may notice that in verse 9 in your bulletin, the text simply reads, for power is made perfect in weakness. There's no my referring to God's power, my power. Every other translation I could find says, my power is made perfect in weakness. And from what we know of the text and, and the rest of the Bible, I think that's the best rendering of this verse. God is saying, my power is activated not through your power, but through your weakness. By you admitting that you need my power and cannot do this on your own. Floyd Patterson was one of the most powerful boxers of his day. In 1956, he became the youngest boxer to ever be the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He held that title for about three years. He lost it, and up to that point, no one had ever regained the title once they lost it. 
but he regained it. And in the title fight where he regained it, he was boxing an old foe who had beaten him. In the third round, Floyd Patterson punches this dude with a left hook that left his opponent twitching on the ground for four minutes unconscious. Here's what that powerful man says about the human condition. He says, I think that within me, within every human being, there is a certain weakness. And he goes on to describe how the one thing he could not conquer was himself. Here you have this immensely powerful man capable of so much brute strength. And yet he realized that inside him was weakness and he could not conquer himself. Throughout the Bible, we have this theme, the surprising theme, that God uses people who are weak. He doesn't pick the strong people. He uses them more than he uses strong people. Throughout the Bible, we have this amazing theme that it's not until we come to the end of our rope and understand how weak we are that we need God's help. It's not until then that all the pieces come together. That's basically what happens when we're stirred by the Holy Spirit and become a Christian. But the danger I feel in my life is that I can get trapped into thinking that was only for my conversion. That was only for becoming a Christian. And I can get trapped into thinking that I can live the Christian life on my own strength. But what Paul and God are telling us here is that's not the way it works. If you want to see my power displayed, it's displayed when people realize they're weak. I get trapped into thinking this because I look around and see athletes and celebrities and business superstars, people we admire, and I see the illusion of security, the illusion of strength, of permanency, the illusion that those things we often envy will somehow endure. And I forget that they may be in the news now or for five or ten years, but I forget about the people who have faded from the headlines. I forget about the superstar athletes who have committed suicide once their careers end. I forget about how rough it was for Elvis, for others, once the limelight faded, even as the limelight kept shining on them. And in that process, sometimes we confuse the flashy for the meaningful. When God says in this verse, my power is made perfect in weakness, he's not saying that weakness is an excuse for laziness. He's not saying it's an excuse for willful incompetence. It's not God's rescue package for the times when we could have prepared more, but we're too lazy and, and simply want God to bail us out. The equation God's speaking of here are the times when we've put in our best, but we realize our best isn't going to cut it. When we realize that our best can offer no lasting thing of significance unless God acts. The question that we face is not, are we weak? You and I are weaker than we realize. We're weaker than we're probably comfortable admitting. The question is, are you and I willing 
to be honest enough with ourselves to look at ourselves and see and admit our weakness and turn those things over to God so that his power can be manifest. Let's pray. Father, we have a hard time seeing the places that we're weak, admitting our weaknesses. We ask that you would give us the courage and the grace to see those things in our life that are weak so that we can hand them over to you and so that your power can be displayed. I pray that you, by your spirit, would encourage us in this and remind us of Paul and this promise from you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.